name is Kave Hoda, and I am the host of this fun little medical podcast in which I bring on friends and professionals and smart people and talk about uh, fun professional stuff and then sometimes not so much. I don't have a good catchphrase yet. I'm really bad at introducing the show. Today, I, with my uh, friends, are going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which I think uh, has not gotten as much attention as it, it simultaneously gotten a lot of attention, but not a lot of attention. I'll explain a little bit about what I mean uh, later with that. But to help me break this down, I have uh, some really great guests. Today, we have Miranda Yaver, political science professor at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. That's the good one. Not the lame Wheaton, apparently, that's somewhere else in the country. Miranda, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? It's good to be back. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. I mean, if I'm doing anything that is more in the political realm, I, I need you around to help me understand it. It's always my pleasure. Joining us also, we have Dr. Stephen Sample, an ER uh, physician in Indiana. Stephen, welcome back, buddy. What up, buddy? I'm just uh, here to throw pot shots and drink beer with you, buddy. God bless you. Tell me, uh, you just got back from uh, deployment? Uh, not really a deployment, exercises with the National Guard. We spent a week out in eastern Kentucky um, preparing for basically end of the world, practice different scenarios of um, a dirty bomb in downtown Nashville, sarin gas attack at a stadium, you know, uh, all kinds of good stuff. So um, we set up our mobile search and rescue places and the mobile field hospitals that we would be using uh, if they ever have to call us. Hopefully they never have to call us. Did I tell you I saw that commercial with you in it for the National Guard? Oh, did you? It's all about you. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Pretty cool. That's funny, right? That's yeah. pretty cool. How yeah. long did it take to yeah. shoot that thing? Uh, a full day. Uh, they, they, uh, well, they, they made a, there was a, they selected like four or five different people and they, they had us in um, and we filmed all day. Uh, it was actually a TV campaign. I think, they, I think it came out Super Bowl time. Um, and, uh, Literally, I was there for like nine hours filming and you can see me for like maybe 1.5 seconds in it with no, no forward. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, shit, that was a waste of time. Uh, and then one of the my medics found that on their recruiting site. So they've been breaking those down um, with, mm -hmm. uh, with the four of us. So I've got my own little two minute blurby piece. It's a great commercial. It did not sell me on doing it, but God bless you for, for making <laughs> it. Didn't, you for it doing didn't sell it. me on doing it. <laughs> yeah. It didn't sell me either. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, I think is how you say it, we have Kristen Flannery, communications manager, and I don't know, you're kind of like de facto med Twitter at this point too, right? Don't you think? Uh, yeah, I am. It's just funny because I'm not medical at all, but um, I'm on all sorts of Twitter lists that are like, you know, medical authorities, and it always makes me <laughs> giggle. <laughs> not really. <laughs> You, you have been doing, you guys have been doing a lot of, you and your husband have been doing a lot of like speaking at like uh, medical events, right? Can you tell me a little bit about yes. that? Yeah, we've been doing a lot of keynotes. Um, he, my husband, it's Dr. Glockenflecken. So he obviously talks a lot about um, social media, comedy and medicine, things like that. Uh, does some stand up every once in a while. Um, I talk a lot more about like patient family experience, um, after having performed CPR on him when he had a sudden cardiac arrest in the middle of the night. So, um, I make everybody cry, then he makes them laugh and they all go on their merry way. 
Wow, what a combo, what a team. Uh, <laughs> for the listeners who are not terminally online like the rest of us, you can learn more about who Dr. Glockenflecken and what Dr. Glockenflecken is and his story with Kristen on prior episodes. I don't know which, just go back and look through it. We have a, a couple there with them. Um, today though, very different. We are gonna be talking about something uh, that I think is really important. And um, I'm not sure it's getting quite the credit it should be. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm giving it too much credit. I want to hear what you guys have, have to, to say. Um, but we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So I'll just, I'll go through the basics if you guys don't mind. If, if, bear with me here. I'll try not to spend too much time on it, but I think it, it warrants some discussion. So you guys may have heard, I'm not sure, but the price of medicine is, is pretty high. Have you guys heard about this? Medicine being expensive? Yeah. So the average price, the average price of brand name prescriptions has more than tripled from 2009 to 2018. And about 40% of Americans, adults have said they've skipped or delayed some healthcare treatment because of healthcare costs. Uh, there was a Yale paper that went out about a month ago, you guys might have seen showing that about 14% of people in the US who use insulin experience catastrophic, quote unquote, levels of spending on their insulin treatment. And so this is this is pretty well known, about 29%, according to the KFF, Kaiser Family Federation, or Kaiser Family something, foundation, foundation. Says foundation is that 29% say in the last year, they have not taken their medications because they just couldn't afford it. It's a pretty <laughs> striking number, right? So this act, it covers a lot of stuff. We're not gonna talk about the environmental aspects. We're not gonna talk about the stock buybacks because. I will never, I won't be able to help interpret that in any way. But what's, there's a lot of factors to this that are new. But to me, I think the one that is one of the most striking is that for the first time, it's going to allow the federal health secretary to negotiate the prices of certain medications for Medicare. So about 48 million people in this country get their, get their medicine from Medicare. I mean, there are some pluses and minuses to it. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, but this is a pretty big deal. Uh, along with that, there's a couple of other interesting things. It's going to require companies to pay rebates if their prices rise faster than inflation does, and if those drugs are covered by Medicare. Um, and it's going to eliminate the 5% coinsurance for coverage in 2024. This is not happening right away. A lot of the stuff is coming down the pipeline, but that's a pretty big deal. Like right now, they can people might have to pay up to $7,000 of out-of-pocket per year uh, on spending on medication. And now it's going to be capped at 2000 And after you get that, you won't have to do this 5% afterwards, which seems like a small number, but can really add up. And then we'll talk a little bit about the insulin aspect of it too, um, because the bill initially had tried to get insulin capped for everyone in the country. Unfortunately, that was blocked. And only is there capping for patients on Medicare. So capped at $35 a month, which as we talked about, is a pretty big deal. So let, let me just start by asking you guys, what do you think this this has done right? And then what do you think it has done wrong? And there's there's a lot to pick out, I think, in both aspects of it, because the bill was not entirely everything that, that people had hoped, uh, even people like Biden. And I think I think it's good to, to talk about the, the problems, but I also want to highlight the things it's doing right. So let's start with what do you guys think is doing well or what it's done well? 
yeah, I'm, I'm a political scientist, so I guess I'll, I'll jump in there. You know, you said that this is a pretty big deal. I would uh, invoke a Biden quote and say it's a BFD. Um, you know, this is, this is, it's very unusual in American politics to see pharma lose in negotiations. Right. Um, so, you know, I was doing some, some research in advance of this. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry has spent $187 million lobbying in 2022 alone, and we're just in August, um, to be able to see um, advancement on, you know, prescription drug pri pricing and negotiations is really um, quite remarkable, especially considering that this is a razor thin majority. Now, so, you know, being able to negotiate price, you know, pricing, drug pricing is something that has been on the, on the Democrats agenda really going back to the 1990s with Bill Clinton's efforts at healthcare reform. Um, they were looking at freezing prices to give some temporary relief. Um, they then tried to give the government power to negotiate prices directly with pharma. Um, that was a non-starter and has we sort of, as we know, the 1994 healthcare reform did not go very well for the Democrats. And then, um, but here, what we're seeing is that uh, we're going to see, you know, prescription drug prices go down for a very, you know, significant subset of the population. Now, you know, where there are limitations, you know, it, this isn't going to cover um, all drugs in terms of price negotiations. And some of this isn't going to go into effect for a few years. And we're still going to be hot seeing prescription drugs that exceed prices that exceed those that we would observe abroad, but this is still a huge step. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think this was um, so, um, that was able to finally come through is that this is something that has been longstanding on the agenda. This wasn't something where the Democrats come to power in 2021, and then all of a sudden they're sort of fig figuring out quick fixes for the pharmaceutical, um, for the for, 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 um, pharmacy benefits. Are, are you saying that the Democrats actually played the long game on something and it worked? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think a really helpful contrast to this is the repeal and replace efforts of the 2017 cycle, uh, where we see Republicans run in 2016 on repeal and replace the ACA. Actually, really going back to the initial implement um, uh, passage uh, um, and enactment of the ACA in 2010, we just see this constant uh, rhetoric around it. But then it's in 2017 that they get around to putting putting together proposals, and as we know, it didn't go very well. And so I think that what we're seeing is both uh, the importance of, of a political party playing the long game and the limitations of, of lobbying, even when you're such a huge force as the pharmaceutical industry. And while there certainly were concessions given the razor thin majority that Democrats have, cough, Kirsten Cinema. Um, you know, there are obviously going to be some, uh, some, you know, watering down. Um, but the, I don't think we should ever um, understate the, the importance of the, this passage of legislation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just the fact that the farm industry seemed to be so against it has to tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> and, Absolutely. And, and I'm sure over year, you said $187 million in, in like a year, you said, right? I mean, in 2022, been... and we're, we're in August. That's so, amazing. Um, amazing. You know, the, and yeah, I mean, when you're, uh, when you're seeing this uh, much lobbying against legislation, as you said, um, you know, it tells you something about the impact that they see this having on their industry um, in ways that are ultimately going to benefit patients. Kristen, you have you and your husband have you both spoke about issues you've had with insurance coverage and difficulties Americans in this country have with insurance coverage. Do you get the sense when you talk about what's wrong with 
our healthcare system, and you, you speak to both medical professionals and you speak to lay people, do you get the sense that there is agreement on that? Do you get the sense that we're at a place in this country where people really are disheartened with their healthcare and that if there was going to be change, this is a time that we could start to see some real change? A hundred percent. People are <laughs> dissatisfied. Some of his you know, videos that talk about the insurance company, those are the ones that the most people can relate to and engage with. And everyone has multiple horror stories about trying to just get their insurance company to pay for their health care like they pay them to do. So it's it, I am up for anything that takes, you know, some of that away from the insurance companies. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody in America is happy with their health insurance, except for the CEOs of health insurance companies. Absolutely. Stephen, you're, you're out in Indiana. You work in a very red area. How is this, how is this bill being covered out there? How are people responding to it? Or are people not even paying attention to it? I, I, I haven't seen a lot of talk about it really from anybody, really physicians or patients or anything like that. Uh, granted, I've been gone for the last week or so, and I haven't been around much in the past, and I tend to work, I'm an overnight worker now, so people are less discussing of politics, and I'm alone, but uh, um, I, I'm excited about it just for my patients, because I, I do have a fair number of elderly people on Medicare who, who make these decisions on a daily, monthly basis of how much of XYZ drug am I going to take and also keep my lights on? You know, I had a particularly heinous case with a lady who fell through the cracks from a pulmonary nodule, but because she had poor coverage, she lost her oxygen and stuff. And of course I found her a year later when she hasn't done anything because of cost and she had widely metastatic cancer and she died like a stinking dog. Um, And that is, that is a lot. We have a lot of poor old people like we don't think of it oh you get medicare and you get your social security but i mean that is pennies um and especially depending on where you live Uh, so i'm stoked about that i have some concerns i I guess my biggest concern is to see how this plays out with the rest of us who are still locked in on typically employer-based insurance plans because Mm -hmm. these greedy son of a bitches are going to make it up somewhere right i mean they are they're going to make this i mean they're not going if you think these ceos are not going to figure out a way to keep the money rolling and so i anticipate that we'll see price hikes for the insured through employer-based plans and those things will be passed right along to the consumer to the consumer so we'll see they've got Uh, yacht maintenance to do it's very sure that's for sure (laughs) you know uh, Last year, uh, set the, the seven health in, major health insurance CEOs uh, brought in $283 million just for themselves, you know? So uh, the pandemic was a boon to insurance CEOs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so we'll see. That's the interesting thing about the pharmaceutical industry in this sense is that their argument about... So one of the things that I found the most interesting about this is that we can now negotiate the prices of certain drugs. Um, sure. And of that, there's only 50 negotiation eligible drugs that, uh, with the highest total Medicare Part D spending that can can go through this. Um, and it doesn't start right away. This is gonna, it's not going to happen for a little bit. It's going to be a couple of years down the road. It's going to be in 2026 where this happens. And then 2027, there'll be 15 uh, medications that can be uh, negotiated. Then in 2028, there'll be 20 uh, medications. So, you know. And then there's it, the question of whether pharma is going to be able to work to f- further water down the legislation between absolutely. now and 26 and 2028. Yeah. Or yeah, overturn I mean, it. Or overturn right. it. 
I mean, and there's in the in it as it stands, it's not perfect still. I mean, so they can't negotiate on certain things like any drug with an orphan designation. So like Martin Shkreli's are going to Martin Shkreli as much as they want a Martin Shkreli. Just wanted to throw in one more Martin Shkreli. And <laughs> small Shkreli. And then small biotech drugs aren't going to be on this. You know, uh, certain drugs that are less than nine years or, or, or 13 years from their FDA approval or licensure date. They're not going to be available. I mean, there's a lot of limitations to it already. But the interesting thing is that the pharmaceutical industry has always been like, well, if we lose money on these things, if we're not able to pay or charge the price we want, then we can't have the innovation that we're looking for, and we won't be able to make as many uh, make as many new medications. And that's that's the, the argument that they're always using, right? In fact, the the Congressional Budget Office looked at it and they're like, "Well, we're probably going to lose in the next thirty years X number of medications." And it was like fifteen medications. I think those CEOs might have a few pennies they could donate if they're worried about innovation. No, they have so much to cover. They're they're job creators or some shit. Houses. <laughs> they have a lot of houses, and we went into the wrong industry. All of us. You guys know that, right? <laughs> like we are so oh, absolutely dumb. I definitely know that. So when when Stephen was talking about thinking about disaster scenarios, I'm thinking as a constitutional law professor, I plan for disaster scenarios, except that it's democratic erosion. <laughs> well, yeah, yours is actually your your disasters are actually more in the forefront than mine are at this point, uh, I think. We, just in your, to your point that uh, we got into the wrong side of medicine uh, entirely. Uh, my best friend, uh, hello, Patrick, if you're watching this, is a dirtbag attorney out in uh, D.C. He's got an office on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, and his primary job is he represents private equity as they continue to swallow you know, business practices whole. He specializes, I think, in dermatology and orthopedic surgery, his private equity guys. And um, I told him uh, we were talking and I said, you're on the wrong side of medicine, dude. He goes, oh, no, you're on the wrong side of medicine. He's like, these son of a bitches are getting filthy, stinking rich. He was like, you pick the wrong side. So Patrick, Patrick, I, Patrick, I was, Patrick. Hmm. What I thought listen. was really telling was that in, when I, in my research for a book I'm writing on the impact of prior authorization, I interviewed a lawyer who used to represent tobacco and also represented insurance. And he said nothing made him feel dirtier than representing insurance, even relative yeah. to having worked for tobacco. <laughs> yeah, that's saying something. I mean, at least tobacco gives some people pleasure. I mean, like <laughs> there's at least something to it there. Um, so you choose it yourself. Nobody chooses to get sick. Right. Okay. So the, the real the real issue for me, the thing that was the biggest failure, and I don't know if there was a way around this, is that they couldn't cap the price of insulin for all patients. I mean, it's a big help for Medicare. There's about 3.3 million beneficiaries who use insulin. So that's a lot of money that's being saved right there. Um, but the, the average Medicare patient uses insulin about $54 per prescription per month. That's, that's a lot of money. And that's, that's also a lot of money from everyday Americans that aren't getting that coverage, getting this cap. This is the interesting thing. You think that most, this, it pulls really well, the, the, the stuff in this. If you were to take out all these components of this bill and ask Republicans, hey, do you think you shouldn't spend more than X amount on your insulin per month? It pulls great. And you, if you ask them, should there be a cap on how much out of pocket you have to pay per year, they, they'll all agree. But, you know, I don't know how it's polling overall as an act. The, the question is, 
shouldn't the Republicans lose every election after this by the sheer fact they blocked the capping of the insulin prices? Like, why can't that be enough to anger Americans? I don't understand. There's so many people with insulin in this country that are spending so much money. They should all be pissed off right now that that cap doesn't extend to them as well. Yes, well, it's because their media is focusing on uh, a very small subset of the population, right? Their media is having them raged up about transgenders and, and gay kids and, and this and that. They're, it's it's a look over here kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think so many of us, when you're faced with that, but when you have their, their news sources day after day after day pounding this stuff in, you know, these things that they consider to be existential threats to them, um, and to their worldview, I mean, I think that that's the way they win. They win by distraction and division. So, yeah, uh, tribalism and identity politics, you know, that yeah. runs deep. That's a primal instinct in humans. They're really playing off of that. And, you know, and I will say that, um, you know, I don't think that what Kaveh, what you're envisioning is impossible because we saw that with in 20, you know, in 2017, Republicans tried to take away the Affordable Care Act. Patients got fired up, you know, outraged about this. And we saw what happened in the 2018 midterms. The challenge right here is that between media and attention and the Democrats not really taking the time away from other legislative priorities to really do a victory lap. Um, there isn't as much transparency in terms of what the um, what progress has been accomplished. Um, I think that what we've seen is sort of just the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, are we going to get mansion? Are we going to get cinema as opposed to the policy substance of what was accomplished? Whereas I think it was easier for, for uh, voters to understand they're going to try to make it so that if I have a pre-existing condition, I can't get health insurance. I think that was felt a little bit more tangible, even though this legislation has tangible benefits, it hasn't been well communicated. Yeah. Okay. So along those lines, there, there is more to this act in just regards to the healthcare aspect of it. It expands eligibility for Medicare Part D low-income subsidy, full benefits, eliminates cost sharing for adult vaccines. So all vaccines are essentially going to be free for, you know, adults. And it also further delays the implementation of the Trump administration's drug rebate rule, which I'm going to be honest with you. I looked up the Trump administration's rebate rule. I don't entirely understand it. I know that now this is being delayed until 2032. I'm kind of, maybe I'm being a little bit of a homer on this one, but I'm assuming the fact that it has the Trump administration rebate rule in it and it's being delayed is a good thing just because of the name. I could be wrong, but it's been delayed. Now, Kristen, let me ask you, with all these things we talked about, with all the things that we've mentioned have like uh, that seem to be pretty big. Again, not not complete not complete win on this one, but a lot of good stuff in this bill. Pretty much everyone, I feel like maybe it's because I live in like a social media echo chamber, but everyone on the left, from the far left to the middle left, all seem to have this impression that the Democrats are ineffective and they can't get anything done and they're just losers. So this is a pretty big deal. BFD, as we say, like, do you feel like there's any chance that this is going to sway people's feelings? Like, I want everyone else to weigh in on this. But first, Kristen, what do you think? Is there a way to, to that the Democrats can use this? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, just from a communications and marketing perspective, uh, they could. Will they? Probably not. 
<laughs> what do they need to do? Is any indicator? What, what do they need to do? Like, because we, we get play up these, you know, the sides of the message of what Miranda was just saying, you know, that these are the benefits to real people. Humans are like naturally self-interested, right? That doesn't mean selfish. It's not a value judgment or a morality judgment, but we all, in order to survive or, you know, evolution made it where you look out for yourself. So instead of talking about all these other things and getting all, you know, caught up in the politics of it, talk about what the benefits are to everyday Americans and say it over and over and over in plain language. That sounds like a good strategy. Miranda, what were you going to say? Yeah. Oh, I mean, couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, I would, I mean, from, from just like having worked on political campaigns, I mean, I'm thinking like, highlighting pa real patients. I mean, I think seeing yes, patients storytelling. Um, I think storytelling is a really powerful tool. Being able to talk about the the you know hardship, the economic hardship of, of obtaining prescription drugs and the benefits that they're going that they're reaping or going to soon reap uh, from this legislation. And they uh, should pick people that look like the Marlboro man. Yeah. Like Steven. Steven should basically yeah, do it. There you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Put on a southern <laughs> accent and get to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, marketing is tough with this stuff, especially because we're not going to see the benefits for several years and the maximum benefits. I mean, shit, after I'm retired and I'm on Medicare, probably, you know, it's it's so far down the road. It's hard. I think that I think that this this next election, if it swings anywhere, it's going to swing on a row. I, I do. I think that that's going to be um, if I were Democrats, I'd have I'd have all these these ruptured tubal pregnancies and and all this stuff and i'd have these girls out telling their horror stories front and center because uh they try to act like it's rare and it seems like every single day you hear another miserable horror, horror story of a girl who's being forced to carry a skullless baby to term and you know and this and that um and you know what? i wish that were enough to do it but i think they need to take a page from ruth bader ginsburg and talk about how that affects men unfortunately yeah. that is mm -hmm. still the world that we live in could you explain what you mean by what does RBG have to do with this? Is that something she said? I think Miranda yeah. should take this one. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I'm so excited that, that you brought this up, uh, Kristen. So basically when, when RBG um, was a young lawyer taking on sex discrimination cases, she was looking at gender gender distinctions, not um, gender distinctions, um, in in various laws and showing how they hurt men. So looking at, for example, um, a law that allowed um, women to begin drinking at 18 and men to begin uh, drinking at 21 and talking about how this was discriminating um, against uh, males between the ages of 18 and 20. And so, you know, this was a landmark, um, yeah, this was a landmark Supreme Court case from the 1970s. And so basically, rather than sort of giving these sob stories about how women were being discriminated against, showing how um, sex, sex cl um, classifications were a double-edged sword, as she characterized it. Mm -hmm. And so basically, um, you know, talking, so um, to Kristen's point, showing that reproductive access, reproductive access um, is not solely a women's issue. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sometimes to change the system, you have to play the game of the system and use it against itself. I'm trying to destroy all podcasting by having a podcast. I have the exact <laughs> same mentality. I want it all to go away, all of it. And the only way I can do that is to get into podcasting and destroy it from the inside. 
Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> um, so l- let me ask you, Stephen, you're an ER doctor. You see patients coming in all the time who are there because they are not able to get the, the, the primary medicine, the preventive medicine they should, or they're not able to take it in the, the way they should. If you sure. had, if you had a say, if you were put on the committee to say, okay, what 10 medications should we negotiate for? I mean, the big drugs, I mean, certainly that we see the most people on anything that surrounds, you know, the American trifecta of diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease, you know, all of those things, because because so many of our patients as they start, you know, they, most of them are comorbid, you very rarely have a di- especially as you age in, you rarely have a diabetic who doesn't also have some vascular disease and neuropathy. So their medicine snowball and you, you know, they go from no meds and they come out of the hospital after an event on like 12. Um, And so, so certainly, I mean, the most commons uh, because, you know, and the big deal that happens a lot for simplicity because it, it sounds terrible, but the fewer pills that you can give a patient, the more likely you are to have a compliant patient with your treatment plan. You know, if I give Valtrex for uh, shingles instead of acyclovir, even though typically acyclovir is much mm-hmm. cheaper than Valtrex, mm-hmm. but you only have to take Valtrex like three times a day as opposed to five times a day for acyclovir. Mm-hmm. And nobody, I, I will not take a pill five times a day. I will not remember, not more than a half a day. Um, and so, you know, we have all these very expensive combination pills where you take two old generic drugs, you smash them together and they make mm-hmm. a new drug and now they're on patent and now they're a fortune. Um, yeah. So uh, so I would probably take a look at those first. Um, and certainly mm-hmm. um, I don't think that they should be able to negotiate birth control at all. I think that they should provide it, uh, you know, especially if they're going to take people's choice away. I mean, you know, you've got to make it as simple as possible to eliminate unwanted pregnancies and and uh, and all this. Even we, even though we know that's not perfect, at least it's better than nothing. Um, no. Yeah, that's great. What, uh, you guys, you're not technically doctors, but I feel you're close enough to weigh in on this. So, what, what any medications you would think like from families and from friends that you think are. Um, that you would like to have added to this list? Well, I can tell you from experience that hormone replacement therapy is absurdly expensive. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it affects a lot more people than, you know, people might realize outside of the medical profession, especially women. I, I totally agree. And I think hormone therapy is crazy expensive. It should definitely come down pricing. I also know, and this is not a reason to not do it. I also know that that'll be red meat for the Fox oh, news watching audience. It'll be like, they're trying to spend all your money to make men, women, and the frogs turn right. into female. Well, I don't know. They're Bundle it frogs. with Viagra or something and it'll go through. <laughs> smart. Viagra is totally going to be on this list, I'm sure. Um, Miranda, any, uh, any thoughts from your perspective? Um, I was thinking about that. I'm, I, nothing is really coming to mind. I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about like, what drugs have I been on? They're all really cheap. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it was just EpiPens. EpiPens would be great. Um, I, de- I would definitely, um, agree with Steven's, uh, suggestion of, of birth control, especially in light of, 
of what the Supreme Court has uh, recently done to abortion access and what state legislatures are, are doing to, to reproductive care more broadly. Um, I mean, one thing I was thinking was like medications for like, I mean, I think antidepressants I mean, I know that there are a million out there, but um, some mm -hmm. of them are prohibitively expensive. And at least, you know, some of the like go-to <laughs> meds that you would, you know, start off with like SSRIs and SNRIs, I think, um, given how many people uh, in the United States struggle with mental health issues um, yeah. and, um, and the fact that, um, you know, these are also issues where prior auth comes up, even in the context of generic medications, uh, which is insane. Um, I think that that would be a huge um, way to, to expand access to mental health care in this country. Yeah, and I would I would hope they would consider not just, you know, Stephen was talking about the things that kill the most people in America, but what prevents the most deaths in America, you know, like what is flip it on its head and look at it from like a, a health perspective instead of a sickness perspective too, um, and you know, kind of consider both ends of that spectrum. Ooh, that goes deep though, because then you get into the whole social determinants of, of illness and, and things like that. And then you're looking at a whole reset of our damn society. I mean, really, we are a business of sickness, but because we can't keep people from getting ill, you know, because I mean, if you have a food desert or you're broke as hell, you live on McDonald's because it's cheaper than going to the store. I mean, you, if yeah. that, you know, it's all of these questions that we ask. If you say, if you ask that next question, well, why is that so? Why is that so? You go down to, to me, to like a fundamental problem with the way that we have structured society. And it all goes back to like, literally like the original sin of the way this country was founded. And it gets so overwhelming uh, that I get super pessimistic that we ever fix any of this bullshit. I'll be honest with you, because there's so, there's so many layers to it. And we're just dealing with the ones that pop up in front of us, right? Birth control is a good mm -hmm. example, though, of something that, you know, you, yeah. can, you can prevent a lot of problems by making that more accessible. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, you can't, you certainly couldn't fix all the problems, but there are a few that, that might get overwhelmed I, we're only looking at it from one perspective. I want to fix all the problems. <laughs> It's funny if you you're like you're saying if you go back far enough if you're like what's the root of this and what's the root of that if you go back far enough it's like it comes down to one of two things maybe a combination of capitalism and racism it's like those are like the yeah. two things that it'll For always sure. come back down to at the end of the day and, mm -hmm. and I, I'm not sure what we're gonna be able to to do about that but I do like that I Who feel gave you my health policy syllabus <laughs> yes is that is that what is it that covers what it's like those two words it's like the problem and then it just says those two things. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I will say this, though. I feel like there is much more of a general sentiment now than I've ever felt before from more people across the country that our healthcare system is broken. I've always, you know, it's always, there's always been people saying that. There's always been people bringing this up, especially in the healthcare community. People who worked in county hospitals have been talking about this for years. And, and there's been people talking about this forever. But I don't feel like I've ever seen it so universally accepted. I mean, like, I, I, I don't hear a lot of people like feeling happy with their healthcare in general. I'm wondering how much of this seems COVID related. Like, did, was it COVID that changed things in a way to have things escalated because of COVID? Or is it just happenstance? The last couple of years have been just awful. And one of those awful things was COVID. But it feels like worse to me or more significant. I think that COVID was was the knife in the back of something that has been building for decades, just based on the structural. Our whole system is designed to extract the most dollars that they can uh, from the shareholder, for the shareholders of these major corporations. 
uh, with no thought to the patients or the providers and caregivers who are taking care of those patients. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I make a very nice living, um, but my piece of the pie is a, is infinitesimally small, right? Um, for what we do. And especially when you go down into the, into the support staff and nursing staff, the, the less lower paid positions, they just want us to do more with less so that they can yeah. keep that bigger piece of the pie so that that CEO can get a $93 billion bonus this year. Mm-hmm. You know, how many nursing salaries does that pay? If he just makes, if he just makes seven figures and not freaking, you know, eight figures. Yeah, so, right. Right, right. I think or nine, I, or nine figures. You know, who knows? I think the, that's the misconception too that you know is out there quite a bit. Is is that you know healthcare is so expensive and doctors are performing healthcare, so it's doctors that are charging all this money and keeping all this money. And I think that's you know it's not accurate, but I don't think that people quite understand that fact at all, and then why that is. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Um, you know, Kristen, you might be a little biased because your husband is a doctor and you're more familiar with, you know, what he actually gets paid. Um, but like I was going to ask you and Miranda, like, what's the general, is the the general conception that doctors are making lots of money off our current system? Because, you know, I feel like years ago, that was the conception and we had to like tell people well you know we do great but we're we're a small small slice of where all that money is going like a really really small part of it you know medical staff and it's all going to these other places it, it, I, do you feel like that's changed at all do you feel like people are more aware of that or do you feel like that's still the mentality around doctors i think that's well, so obviously the money is going to people phds all <laughs> <laughs> right Pro, uh, poli sci professors yeah <laughs> yeah what were you saying, Kristen? Were you saying you think it's still that way? I think it's still that way for a lot of people. Yeah, I think, um, you know, within the bubble of of the healthcare world, people understand that better. Um, but outside of that bubble, I don't I don't know that they do. I don't know. Yeah, I Maybe you guys that, would hear from that in your jobs. I think that the left and the right hates doctors and we're easy, um, we're easy targets because we are the people, you know, you don't you don't see your CEO of your insurance company's right. mansions, mansions, jets, Gulfstream jets, but you see maybe your doc driving a super nice car down the road in your in your town, right? I mean, I've got a ridiculous looking. It's an American sports car, but it's a sports car. I look like a moron in it. I get it. But uh, <laughs> he had to preface this. He had to qualify by saying it's an American sports American, car. American, no, not an Italian lame. sports car. It is. Uh, it, it's an Italian. But I mean, you know, you see me. You're like, oh, that rich, you know, it's easy, like, if you don't make much money to say that rich son of a bitch, I just went to the ER and he saw me and my bill was seven grand, Uh, not knowing that out of that, I mean, I get paid by the hour, so it doesn't matter. But even if I was a fee for service stock, knowing that maybe I made a hundred bucks on that visit ish, less, less or more, depending on what you do, but nothing, you know, the, the, the fees of your average emergency visit and your hospitalizations, they're not going to the physicians. They're going to these facility fees where they can hide tremendous costs. You know, um, if you ever want to lose your mind, just ask if you're ever hospitalized or have anybody hospitalized, ask for an itemized bill. Um, and they will list down to the, down to the Tylenol that they give you, um, and down to the little tiny piece of plastic that they used on this thing and see what they charged and then see what the physician's fees were, um, and then see what the insurance actually gave the physician. That's all, that's always a fun exercise, but it is, it is amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's so many reasons for people to be mad at you other than you being rich. Sure. 
Your well, face being one of them. Because it's so handsome. Made for punching. Because it's so we've handsome. Had, mm. We've had 50% of the population being told that physicians who are trying to practice good medicine and public health policies over the last few years are actively lying to them. Mm-hmm. There is a now there is a generalized distrust of medical authority from half half of the population. We already had enough of that. Uh, some of it earned and some of it not earned. A lot of it, uh, frankly, historically was earned. Uh, but now there's half the country thinks that we are beholden to other masters other than the doctor patient relationship. Yeah, right. The only doctor myth that seems to have finally been rightfully dissolved is that we play golf, or at least all of us do. I think the only one people don't assume I play golf anymore. Other than that, I don't think that much else has, has changed, unfortunately. One thing that I that I did just want to say, and I am trying not to just make this, you know, a plug for my book, but you know, when I when I was interviewing patients about um about their experiences getting um, denied uh, medical coverage and dealing with, for example, a $7,000 emergency department visit. Um, the people with whom I spoke, and obviously this was um, you know, not, a, I surveyed a random sub- subset of the population, but I didn't interview a random subset, but they were all very, their frustrations were very targeted at their insurance companies and not, um, and not their healthcare providers. Um, yeah. There's, so, you know, it didn't need to be like this frustration that your doctor was ordering unnecessary tests for some sort of monetary benefit. It was much more of, you know, my insurance company is screwing me. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I wanted to add was you know, when you were saying that people's perceptions of the healthcare system maybe got worse in the last few years. I think part of it is that COVID exposed a lot of the problems with our insurance system, such as racial disparities and access to care um, and exposing them to these pre-existing problems and but just sort of shining a light on it. Yeah. But one other issue, um, again, sort of on this prior auth issue is that this is something that results in you know a, num- a non-trivial number of denials and this is something that has gotten a lot worse in recent years so for example um 18 percent of the drugs on Cigna's formulary in 2016 were subject to prior auth it went up to 28 percent in 2022 that's a pretty steep increase and that's resulting in some barriers to care and so um i think that COVID was a significant contributor to people really understanding the various mm-hmm. flaws in our health insurance system. But there are also other issues outside of COVID that have been in a pretty rapid um, pace, right. um, imposing new uh, barriers to care for, for many patients. Yeah, put stress on a system that was already fragile and broken. Um, all right. We're going to see that with this act too, that you know, whatever drugs end up being on it, um, to be negotiated if they will just start making it harder and harder for patients to get access to those so that they have a little more time to collect those premiums before they have to pay that, you know. Not, not to get too political, but I absolutely am sure that both from the Republicans and insurance companies, they're going to find so many ways to make this act look bad that they can then say, look, this this has ruined everything. Look how much you're spending on this medication now that we totally hiked it up and ruined the plan. Anyways, okay. And we're gonna say that before it even got implemented. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let's close up shop here. Uh, It was so great having you all on. I love each and every one of you. Uh, So let's get some plugs in. Let's do some uh, plugging of things. Uh, Miranda, let's start with you. What can we plug? Uh, So I have a 
forthcoming book on the scope and impact of health insurance um, coverage uh, denials of coverage um, for healthcare. Um, uh, stay tuned. And if you want to find me, um, uh, find me on Twitter at Miranda Yoffer. Reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And we'll be talking about that book more when it comes out. Uh, Kristen, yourself? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, um, at L. Glockham Flecken, spelled just like it sounds. Shouldn't be a problem. Um, go check out Dr. Glockham Flecken on YouTube and uh, refresh your CPR skills. Absolutely. Uh, listen to our episode, earlier episode with uh, Kristen to hear that story. It's an amazing one. Uh, Steven, what about you, bud? I've got nothing, man. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's Superman Sings, all one word, S-U-P-E-R-M-A-N-S-I-N-G-S. Uh, it's a long story. Don't ask. And uh, <laughs> that's about it. That's about it. All right. I love you guys. I'm not doing please, shit, right? I'm not please, doing shit right now, just, but working. Why don't you come back and visit me in San Francisco? We'll have another beer Soon. drinking competition Soon. and you can make me Very look sad. Okay. Before the before the end of the year. All right, perfect. All right. You guys are invited too, Miranda, Kristen, you guys are invited. Uh, oh, I'll drink you under the table. Get ready. Ooh, He's not saying much challenge. to me, but if you beat him, that's impressive. So challenge accepted. All right. All right. Bye. Yeah, yeah. So I got it. Beer's on Thank me. You guys you. rock. Thanks, guys. Bye. It's good to Bye. see you all. Bye. Nice Bye. to meet Bye. you. Bye. See ya. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.